In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. The Spanish-American philosopher and essayist George Santayana wrote several aphorisms that linger on today, more than 100 years after he began writing. And one that has lodged itself in my brain goes like this. The loneliest woman in the world is a woman without a close woman friend. I think I probably know about it because of a gift card that someone probably gave me, um, a friend, saying, don't worry, you make me less lonely. Well, looking back, there have been seasons in my life where this was true, where I was the loneliest woman, where I didn't have a close woman friend, um, or at least it was for a little while before I put down roots in the place where I lived. It is a hard truth, isn't it? But I actually think that women are not the only lonely ones. Each one of us needs relationships in our lives that are characterized by honest vulnerability, deep compassion, and a sense of common purpose. It could be found in an abiding friendship, in our marriage, or in even the closeness that can exist between adult siblings. But then even when we find it, it can easily grow cold. Resentment can build up, distance sets in, or we're just too busy to connect very much. And so we end up wandering around in the world, barely bumping into each other, harboring a hollow loneliness. Well, as Jesus prays to God the Father in John 17, he speaks to this aching human need for deep relationship. His betrayal and his arrest lurk just outside the door to the upper room, and the cross casts a shadow over all of what Jesus says in this farewell to his followers. Here at the end of their time in the upper room, Jesus allows the disciples to listen in to his prayer. He prays to the Father for himself, for his disciples in his absence. And even then, later in the chapter, he'll pray for all Christians throughout the ages who will come to faith through the witness of the first disciples. The language in this passage of the Son for the Father speaks of a relationship of deep trust, of unity of purpose, and of a humble desire to put the other first. Jesus will later pray in Gethsemane, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But here he prays, in contrast, Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. This language prioritizes the welfare of the other. Jesus is asking God to be glorified and exalted through the suffering that he was about to endure. Jesus wants the love of God to be palpably manifested to the world through the cross, through the work that the Father had given him to do, that the Father would be lifted up, that the Father would be glorified, that all eyes would be on God the Father, even as the Son hung there on the cross. What a request. What a sign of love. What a sign of humility. Have you ever accidentally overheard a conversation between two other people at another table in a restaurant? I never do that. But if you've ever been in a restaurant and you can't help it and you just hear what they're saying, and sometimes you hear the most wonderful things, sometimes you hear the most awful things, but sometimes you hear the most wonderful things and you think, I've thought, I wish I had something like that a relationship like that. I wish someone would talk to me like that. 
Well, I feel this way listening in to Jesus' conversation with the Father here in John 17. I wish I had more of that closeness, more of that intimacy with God. I wish I truly desired all the time that he would be glorified in all my work. This closeness of relationship in John 17, it doesn't stop with the Son and the Father. It starts there in that relationship between Father and Son, but it doesn't stop there. As Jesus goes on from there to pray for his followers, we hear again a sense of belonging, belief, obedience and unity between those who believe in Jesus and Jesus himself. And we even hear in verse 10 that Jesus is glorified in them, in his disciples. They exalt Jesus just as Jesus exalts the Father. There is that desire, thy will be done, you be lifted up, you have your way, you be glorified. Well, Jesus then also prays, not only giving thanks for the oneness between him and his followers, but he prays for those who will believe in him and that they would be one even as he and the Father are one. We hear that in verse 11. And Jesus will later go on to broaden this prayer, not just for those who believed there in that upper room, but for all of us throughout the ages who would believe. I do not ask for these only, he says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Behind all this language of oneness, do you feel the love? Do you hear the love? Because we are, each of us, in Christ through faith in him, then we're also united with each other. Sorry, we can't help it. We are one in him. We are stuck with each other. This has already happened because of our faith. And Jesus then prays that this affection, that these shared aims and the unity of will and purpose will continue. Do you hear why Jesus desires this unity? I'll say it again. In verse 23, he prays, so that the world may know that you sent me father and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus prays that the world would know the love of the father. Jesus prays that that part of creation that is in rebellion against the father would know that God loves them. God loves us even in our sin as much as he loves his own son. Essentially, as we believe in him, Jesus then is inviting us into relationship with him and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he is also inviting us into relationship with each other. It might feel at times like a formal relationship, but the kind of relationship that he really desires for us is one of closeness, one of depth. Um, as my husband and I were in the long process of getting discharged from the hospital following the birth of our daughter in February, the nurses did their duty in urging me and my husband to keep an eye out for any signs of postpartum depression. Um, they didn't peg me as a ringer for it. 
But the statistics are so high. Sometimes some would say even as high as 60% show some symptoms. Um, and so they probably warn all new parents. What a good thing. Well, the causes, well, I'm, I'm okay. Thank you, Lord, that I'm okay. <laughs> um, the causes of this kind of depression aren't clearly known. But Scott and I began to theorize, as we do, a philosopher and a theologian or pastor, we have vastly different theories about why. Well, I assumed that any depression or anxiety would be a form of grief, um, grieving over the loss of closeness between mama and baby. For more than 42 weeks, yes, 42 weeks, she was a part of my body. And you don't get any closer than that. I recently read a quote in a book on motherhood that speaks to this intimacy between mother and child. And I really love it. Here it is. Making the decision to have a child, it is momentous. It is to decide forever to have your heart go walking around outside your body. I feel that way. I look at her and my heart aches. I love her in a way I don't get to choose. I loved being pregnant and I am grateful I had a relatively easy pregnancy, but I could imagine at the end of that pregnancy grieving the loss of that proximity to each other, that intimacy. Thank goodness now we're just closer in a different way. We get to see each other smile. Well, my husband, by the way, on the postpartum depression, he assumed that um, that kind of depression was caused by the increase in chores that comes from a baby. <laughs> I know. I think he's probably right as well. <laughs> well, so this longing, this deep longing for closeness and intimacy is something that each one of us experiences. We probably walk through seasons in our life where we get to have it and share it more often than others. Um, I also remember this loss of closeness, grieving this loss, when I moved to New York City in 2001. I had just come from college. Um, at Wheaton College, I had been involved in the theater group there, which is, has a strange name called Workout. There were 40 of us that met twice a week, and we did weird theater exercises to get ready for whatever kind of show we were performing in. But then we also would work together to build the sets, the costumes, set up the lighting for each of our shows dur during the season. And we were committed. We had to be committed to this kind of relationship. It was, part of, it was almost like a contract. And a of course, some people didn't do it or whatever, but it was fine. And we also, a lot of us were roommates, so we lived together. We spent all of our meals together. There was always one part of the dining hall that was like the theater nerd part of the dining hall. And so we always knew to find each other there if we wanted to. And we just grew so close. And I do think part of it was that we had this common purpose. Together we would be working in the trenches to build this show, to put on this piece of artwork that we'd, um, we were invested in emotionally and creatively. But then also one of the beauties of it was that we were all Christians. And so we shared our lives emotionally and relationally, but also spiritually. And so when I look back on that time in my life, I, it was so wonderful. And I just think about it and I thank God for it because I do believe it was like a little taste of heaven. We were so close to each other. And sometimes we forgot the particulars about each other's life, but it didn't mean that we didn't love each other or know each other. It was just sort of like those things weren't important, where we came from or um, it, nowadays I would say what we did for a living, even though we were all students back then. I think here at the Advent we have some of that together 
as the body of Christ, I see it most, you tell me where you see it, but I see it most in our Lenten lunches. I was sad to miss Lent this year, but there's something about walking into the kitchen or the chapter room during Lent. It's a privilege to walk in and there's a group of women and some men that are all committed to this common purpose. It is like you are in the trenches together to make this wonderful meal for people. You have this common purpose and you end up really getting to know each other in a way you might not if you just saw each other socially or in another capacity. Well, God desires this closeness for us. And so when I left that workout group, my theater group, and I was there in New York City, it was a depressing time. It was after 9-11. Uh, the, the city, I like to call it the city with a capital C, was very upset. And people would just sort of walk around like shadows. Well, there I was longing for this community that I had had. I was missing it. And I was calling out to God in my own way. Yes, I was praying and reading scripture, but I was also cranking up the volume and listening. I would listen to, um, I think, Radiohead in Rainbows. And I think I also listened to, I listened to good Christian music too, but I also listened to, um, I think, David Bowie's Under Pressure. And I had the apartment to myself. I'd crank up the music and I'd probably cry or dance around or write in my journal. And when I look back at my journal um, from that time, God was so palpably present to me in the midst of my loneliness. One of the beauties of that time was that God met me. My longing was for community um, with other people, which is a true good longing, but it was also longing for relationship and intimacy with him. And he answered that longing so graciously. When I read my journal, I can see that. He was there with me, showering me with his love undeservedly. And I did find some friends in New York. That came a little later. But I was longing. I was reaching out to him. Well, this longing for intimacy that is in each one of us, it of course can only be fully satisfied by the kinds of connections God shows us in John 17. We are beings made for love. We are meant to be in relationship with God and in relationship with each other. God invites us in. Jesus invites us in here in John 17. He assumes that the possibility of this depth of intimacy happens because of faith in him, but only by his death and his passion is this true closeness possible. As Jesus there intercedes in prayer that night before his death, he prepares to make intercession for sin through his own spilled blood the next day. He knows that his death will remove the barrier that hinders relationship with God. As he is then lifted up on the tree, literally lifted up, Jesus is glorified, exalted. Jesus displays there on the cross for all to see the glorious love of God, a love that gives all for the beloved. In John's gospel, I love how language of light and glory surround the moment or the three hours, as we know from the other gospels, of literal darkness at Jesus' death. And that juxtaposition of light and darkness makes me tend to see the cross and I, as a photo negative. Do you know a photo negative? We, we all use digital photos now, so we forget. But in a photo negative, in the negative, light is dark and dark is light. 
What seems to be dark at the cross is actually light. What seems by human perspective to be the lowest low point possible is actually the high point. That day when God himself died seemed like defeat but would actually result in victory. God seemed to be doing nothing on that day. And yet Jesus accomplished everything for us. That terrible, horrible day of Jesus' death is actually a good day, or a good Friday. We say a phrase sometimes in our communion prayer. We said it um, during Lent and during, um, during Advent. We say it after receiving communion. Um, we earnestly desire, here's how it goes, we earnestly desire thy fatherly goodness mercifully to accept this our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, most humbly beseeching thee to grant that by the merits and death of thy Son, Jesus Christ, and through faith in his blood, we and all thy whole church may obtain remission of our sins and all other benefits of his passion. I love that prayer, and I love that phrase, all other benefits of his passion The epicenter, if it's like an earthquake, the epicenter of what Jesus' death accomplishes for us is the forgiveness of our sins. But moving out from there like shock waves are all sorts of other material and spiritual benefits. And I would say that oneness with Jesus and the Father and oneness, unity with each other is one of those benefits of his passion. Through the cross, the way is open for us for honest, open, deep, humble, meaningful, lasting, loving relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And through the cross, the way is also now opened for us for honest, deep, meaningful, loving, lasting relationships with each other in him. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death, and we ask you to continue to open our hearts um, to receive you. We ask, Lord, that you would shower us with your great love for us. Um, Though our relationship with you might be a formal reality, we ask, Lord, that you would open up the way for it to be a daily um, joy and a daily source of sustenance for us relationally and emotionally. And we ask for friends, Lord, um, for deep, lasting, abiding friendships in you, for your glory's sake and for our benefit and for the building up of your church. Amen.